Hello, I'm Neil Moody, editorial hairstylist, YouTuber, Instagrammer, Facebooker, interviewer, etc. And welcome to the second series of my In Bed with Neil Moody podcast. In series one, I interviewed friends and work colleagues from the fashion and beauty industry who are entrepreneurial and also think outside the box. In series two, I'm expanding outside of my industry a little more and I'm subtitling this series, Turning a Corner. While some of my guests are still people in my industry, there will be others featured who I've met through my more recent conversations about mental health on Jamie Day's Man Talk podcast, Scott Laidler's Healthy Ambition podcast, and Jamie Neal's 360 Yourself podcast. Everybody I'm interviewing this time around either chose, were encouraged, or forced to turn a different corner in their lives. My guest in this episode is friend Michael Brady. Michael studied medicine in Nottingham and after moving around the UK with the NHS ended up at the King's College Hospital in Brixton, South London as a HIV and sexual health consultant. He eventually became clinical lead for sexual health services at King's College and also a trustee of the Terence Higgins Trust, the largest HIV and sexual health charity in Europe, where in 2007 he was appointed as their first medical director. In April 2019, he was appointed as the first ever National Advisor for LGBTQ health, with the aim being to reduce health inequalities for the LGBTQ communities and improve their experience of health and social care. He continues to work in King's College Hospital also, and I met Michael in my home in London to chat about his life and newly created role for the UK. Hi Michael. Hi Neil. <laughs> nice to see you. You too, thanks and for having me. New haircut. <laughs> Fresh from the barbers. As yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about your upbringing, where you come from, how you've ended up from where you started to where you are now. Okay. I know that you grew up in Huddersfield. I did. You went to a local Catholic comprehensive. I did. Were you raised Catholic? Yeah, I yeah. was a good Catholic boy. Were Altar you? boy, <laughs> yes, all the bells and the smells and the, yeah. the, the frocks and the candles. I was a very good good Catholic boy. A little bit lapsed now. I don't, yeah. really, I don't really follow the religion Do you not really anymore. practice? No, not at all. Mm. Not at all. Uh, my parents still do, though, mm. but, but me and my brothers and sisters don't go to, right. go to church anymore. If anybody's wondering, by the way, who's listening, I know Michael because I know his husband, right. Matthew Subroy, who's also a hairdresser like me. Lovely Matthew. So anyway, that's just in case anybody goes, how does he know him? <laughs> so, so yeah, did, was growing up good in Huddersfield? Did you enjoy it? Was uh, it like... Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I had a really happy upbringing. Mm. I'm, I'm one of four kids. Uh, I was adopted. Me and my sister were adopted and then... My mum and dad had two sort of kids naturally on their own, so I'm the oldest of four. Yeah, it was a really nice, uneventful, relatively uneventful <laughs> upbringing. My mum and dad were both teachers, university lecturers and teachers. Yeah. I was a bit of a swat at school and played the cello. Probably why you've done really well now. Well, no, absolutely. You have to be a swat to get where you've got. <laughs> exactly. You studied medicine at Nottingham University, didn't you? So you moved to Nottingham what age? That would have been 19. I had a year off from doing my... So I did my A-levels. And then actually, when I was doing my A-levels, I thought that I wanted to be a vet rather than a doctor. Hmm. I don't really know why, because I don't even really like animals that much. Don't you? I, well, I think I do know why. It's because I was really into all creatures great and small on the telly. That's really right, yeah. showing my age. I know it. I know it. That looks like a nice life. But then um, I changed my mind. Mm-hmm. So I had a year off, and then I went to university when I was about 19. Right. Uh, so I moved to Nottingham, uh, which was a great place to be a student, actually. Mm. Made some great friends, had a really good time. I was there for five years. 
and it was a nice, it was an, it, I'd moved up far enough away from home to have left home, but I was still close enough to drive back and take my washing on the other weekend. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird, Nottingham's, because I'm from Birmingham and Nottingham's considered more the Midlands, isn't it? It is, or whereas the East Midlands. East Midlands, yeah. yeah. Whereas, I mean, I'm from West Midlands, supposedly, yeah. geographically. Huddersfield is north, isn't it? Yeah, so it's yeah. West Yorkshire, it's kind of near Leeds. But you moved about a bit, didn't you? You went to Scotland as well. Just for six months. Yeah, yeah the best six months of my life, oh, probably. Really? It was great fun. When Drinking you, a lot. <laughs> yeah, it was a little bit like that. It was, well, when you when you graduate from medical school, you have to, um, well, but in those days, the way it worked was you did six months of a surgery job and six months of a medical job right. as a very, very junior doctor. And when you finished that year, then you were properly qualified and accredited with the with the General Medical Council. So I went up to Greenock, which is on the coast, just um, just outside Glasgow with a friend of mine, Sally. And um, we just had, a, we had such a laugh. Mm. It was great. So we worked hard. Um, you know, we did all of that. In those days, it was that on, you'd do an on-call, you'd start on a Friday night, you'd finish on a Monday morning. Right. It was kind of really... I mean, you did So were you in a hospital like, then? Yeah, yeah, so it was a hospital. It was the Royal Inverclyde Hospital in Greenock. So we lived in hospital accommodation. It was great because we, we hadn't started paying back our student loans yet. You didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to pay any rent or any bills and you were getting, you know, you were getting a salary. So we had a great time. We worked hard, but then every weekend... There were eight of us that were doing these these surgical jobs, junior doctors, and we all got really well. And most of them had trained in Glasgow. So every weekend, two would be on, on call, and the other six of us would go through to Glasgow for the weekend. And right. have a good time. I do actually really like Scotland, but I've never, I can't imagine what it's like to live there. I just think it'd be really cold. It was cold, and it was quite rainy, but it was just great fun. Yeah. And just the people are so lovely. They are nice They're people. Really hospitable. Yeah. And then you moved to London to do an A&E job, didn't you, in yeah. Barnet, Barnet General Hospital. Yeah. How was that? Because I've got a friend of mine in Birmingham who I grew up with, yeah. and I'm also godfather to a daughter, but she runs the A&E in the big hospital in oh, Birmingham really? now. Yeah. And, I mean, I just don't know how she does it. It's a crazy life. My dad went in there when he was ill before he died. And I remember just going to see him at like going up to Birmingham at seven o'clock in the morning. And when we got there, it was like crazy villain A&E. Yeah. Yeah, but that, I think every every A and E is like that. So when I was there, it was in, in Barnet, North London. It's, it's got a it's got a big shiny new hospital now, but it was quite basic mm. the A and E department. But it was quite it was really busy. You'd get the usual Friday night, Saturday night, loads of drunks, people have fallen over, cut their heads open. Because it was quite near the M one, we used to get quite a lot of horrible road traffic accidents and stuff like that coming in. I used to kind of try and avoid it as much as I can. Mm-hmm. I always used to volunteer to. <clears throat> there was always a job sitting at. If I was on a night shift. There was always a job sitting in the room stitching people up. So I always used to volunteer to do that. So you didn't have to do any of the stuff. I'll do the yeah. stitching. The, I, got, I took a real pride in my in my yeah. work. I used, to really, I used to really enjoy it. Yeah. Because you could sit at the back. It was really quiet. They just you know they just wheel them in one after the other. And, you know, you just stitch them up. You could have the radio on. It was, mm. it was away from the, the, the craziness. So do you like blood and guts? Cause I, don't. <laughs> I wouldn't say I, I don't... I don't dislike them. Obviously, I, I couldn't be sort of phobic of them, I guess. No. Doctor, but, um, yeah, I don't mind them. But, I mean, the, the job I do now doesn't really doesn't really involve a lot of blood and guts. But I don't mind. I like doing little little things. So yeah. I, I, you know, I, never really want, I never wanted to be a surgeon. I never wanted to, mm. you know, be chopping people up. But the, the stitching and the tidying up, I used to, I used to really enjoy yeah. that. But I remember you told me that you were doing an exam to become a member of the Royal College of Physicians. Yeah. What did what did that involve then? When what is I, I don't totally understand what the Royal College of Physicians yeah. is. So, so that, there's a there's a Royal College for every kind of of doctor that there is. Right. So there's a Royal College of Physicians, a Royal College of Surgeons, mm-hmm. a Royal College of Psychiatrists, of General Practitioners. Right. And they kind of oversee uh, and regulate to a certain degree doctors in different different specialities mm. so to to progress 
and to specialize you have to become a member of the relevant royal college right. so if you want to specialize as a surgeon you have to become a member of the royal college of surgeons i, I wanted oh, to specialize as a physician so you have to become a member of the royal college of physicians so yeah. it's kind of one of a number of stages of exams you know, so mm. you don't stop doing exams after you leave medical school yeah so that the next big ones and people do it maybe two three four years after leaving medical school is is to do the exams to become a member of the royal college of whatever, whatever so it is. Member yeah. of the college of physicians so it, you have to have done a reasonable amount of work you have to have built up quite a reasonable amount of experience and mm. then there's paper exams and then you have to do a, a practical exam yeah so i went to reading to do this practical and they kind of like wheeling loads of patients and mm. actors and stuff so there's like a practical element and a written element right oh, okay but that was when you chose to specialize in hiv wasn't it and yeah, sexual it health yeah at that point because yeah. it really when you when you when you become a member of the royal college that's the time that you make your final special you know so mm. it's a, i'm going to go into this particular area yeah and because then you become a, a, a registrar in that area when you right. kind of start your specialist training i mean i guess going through medical school and through the work it's kind of it's a bit of a process of elimination in terms of what you want to do and what you don't want to do in, in medicine. And I, I quite early on knew that I didn't want to be a surgeon and I didn't want to be a GP. When I'd left medical school, I, I was interested in psychiatry. I was interested in cancer care and palliative care. and I was interested in, in HIV. And then you went to King's College, which is actually where you still work now, yeah. isn't it? So you went there as an HIV and sexual health consultant. Is that right? Yep. You were working in the HIV outpatients clinic. Yeah. How was that at that time? So that was, how long was that? That was in the, about 2004, mm. that was. I mean, I think it was, it was a time when we had good treatments. So we were kind of, year on year, it was mm. getting better. So you were slowly seeing fewer people getting sick, fewer people being on the wards, yeah. fewer people dying. But it was, it was also a time when, I mean, this is one of the things that I kind of got particularly interested in, where we were still not doing as well as we could do around the prevention side of things. I'm just trying to think of, like, where HIV yeah. was at that stage. It, it was 1997. That's, that's when yeah. I passed those exams and started specialising in HIV, mm. which in the HIV epidemic is actually kind of seen as a bit of a seminal turning point. Right. So, I mean, if we kind of look at HIV now in sort of different phases mm. so there was the early phase you know in the 80s when it was just horrific and yeah you know people when everyone was just dying yeah exactly yeah. And there were no treatments and mm. it was you know the stigma the discrimination was just terrible it was just so you know that's kind of the first phase and and there weren't really that many treatments available and then 1997 is kind of the tipping point in terms of treatment for hiv right because that's when new drugs started to become available mm. so from that point onwards and and there really was a sort of a really massive rise of, of new drugs it became easier and easier to treat people and slowly fewer people died people were getting well again people were living so what drugs were they were they ones that sort of controlled it or yeah yeah so they're they're called antiretrovirals so basically they work by blocking the stopping the virus from reproducing right so if you don't have treatment basically the virus will just reproduce it will spread throughout your body and slowly damage your immune system mm. and, and it can be very slow it can be over many years and then your immune system gets weaker and weaker and without treatment you'd get sick and then you, you die so yeah. the, basically the treatment stops the virus in its tracks mm. and if you take it regularly it will completely suppress it which then allows your immune system 
to recover. The epidemic has changed. Well, certainly in developed countries like, like, the, like the UK, mm. such to the point that now, if you get diagnosed with HIV now, particularly if you're diagnosed early and get started on treatment straight away, your life expectancy is normal. Mm. And also when you're on treatment, you can't pass the virus on to other people. So mm. the treatment's really revolutionised. Yeah. Interesting. The HIV experience. Yeah. I wanted to ask you, actually, have they ever figured out where it really started? <laughs> or is that still a bit of a billion-dollar question? It's less than a billion-dollar question. There's the people that have done this really clever, I mean, it's really sciencey clever, sort of genetic, almost like forensic looking back, mm. and, and gone back to blood samples from decades or even centuries ago. So you can find virus that looks very much like HIV in blood samples from the early part of the 20th century, from the 1900s. Oh, wow. It's thought that it, and it kind of all tracks back to the central Western Africa around the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. So it's thought that that's where it started from. Probably mm-hmm. it evolved from a virus that already existed, right. either in humans or in monkeys. Because yeah, because of... I saw a programme recently about the Congo and some mm. a virus and disease that they have there that they said is kind of similar yeah. to HIV. I can't remember what it's yeah. called. Well, now, there's lots of viruses that are similar. So there's there's right. there's SIV, which is simian immunodeficiency virus, which monkeys get. There's right. FIV, which is feline immuno uh, immunodeficiency virus, which cats get. So there's there's, oh, wow. there's lots of very similar viruses. Right. And it's just thought that at some point, you know, probably in the seventies some a number of things happened. The virus mutated, the virus changed, it was easier to spread, and it kind of coincided with, you know, the globalisation thing, so people were travelling around, so it actually made it much easier for the virus to become a global epidemic rather than yeah. just stuck oh, in, in, in little outbreaks. Yeah. Because it's, it, I mean, in a way, HIV is kind of really... Its simplicity is is genius. It's spread by something that pretty much everybody does mm. through sex. It, you can have it for a long time and not know that you've got it. Oh, really? You know, so can it sort of just be like hide? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So actually, people can stay even if you were tested. Well, not if you were tested. So if you were tested, then you would then you would get treatment. Right. But if you weren't tested, it could be some, for some people eight ten years before you'd get sick. Mm. So that in a way you've got eight or ten years of potentially being able to pass it on. Yeah. You know, for a virus, in a way, the point of the virus is just to get spread from one person to another. The virus mm. can't live by itself, so it needs humans to live in. Yeah. So there's no point of a virus that kills you in a week because <laughs> it doesn't have as much chance to mm-hmm. pass itself on. So yeah. you know, so the fact that it's spread by something that everybody does, the fact that it you know it can lay hidden for quite a long time and therefore have lots of opportunities to spread, right. and the fact that you know, in the 70s, 80s, and then and then onwards, you know, people moved around the world mm. much more than they ever used to do before. Yeah. It enabled it to become the global epidemic that it, that it is. Mm. Interesting. Tell me if I'm wrong, but in the Western world, America and New York is where it really exploded, wasn't it, as a thing? San Francisco was another part, wasn't it, as well? Yeah. Because it, it becomes very it, linked with the gay community. It was very it? much linked to the, in the gay community, and therefore it was linked to the uh, the areas where the gay community concentrated, like yeah. the East Coast and the West Coast. So mm-hmm. not too long after that, it started to pop up everywhere else, mm-hmm. but those were the real epicenters to start with, San Francisco and, yeah. and, and New York. You know, you can then see it spreading around the world and then you get you know it starts off in the cities where gay men mm. congregate or tend, yeah. to, tend to move to and do they do they believe that it's spread in the gay community because of the promiscuity that did go on then and the virus spreads through 
sex without condoms. And so yeah. the more sex without condoms you have, the easier the virus is, mm. is to spread. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's, obviously it's not just a gay disease. No. I mean, globally, there's actually many more heterosexuals than, than, than gay men. So yeah. It's just it got so heavily labelled as the gay disease, didn't it? Back yeah, in the day, but, but I, think, I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about HIV, personally, just, just the, the sort of social stigma nature of it. You know, it's yeah. still, even now that even though things are better, it's still, I'd say, probably the most stigmatised disease. You know, people don't think about people with cancer or with diabetes in the same way that they think about HIV and I think mm. you can look back on all of those awful things in the 80s and it, it was an excuse to demonise populations that are already people were looking for an excuse to demonise whether yeah. that was gay men or migrants or uh, African Americans mm. or you know sub-Saharan Africans or injecting drug users it was affecting marginalised communities mm. who were already being discriminated against. I was watching a thing the other week on TV and they were talking about how it was advertised not advertised but in as it the way it was portrayed on TV when they were trying to get people to you know be aware of it mm. and they were saying it was so alarmist in yeah. a way and yeah. And almost kind of, you know, telling people not to touch anybody with yeah. it. I mean, and it was kind of, when you watch it now, you're a bit like, oh my God, I can't believe they actually got away with yeah, doing yeah, yeah. what they did. No, exactly. I mean, some of it was, because right in the very early days, people weren't really sure how it was caught. No. And, and, you know, they didn't know that it was it was all spread through, or mostly spread through sex for, for quite a while. But then it was also really reflective of what's going on in the time. There was so much fear about it. Yeah. So you look at those health promotion campaigns now, we would never do anything like that now, but they were very fear-based. In that, and, you know, anyone of a certain age will remember all the, the iceberg and the Don't Die of Ignorance campaign <laughs> in, the, in, in the UK. Yeah. But actually, I mean, I have a bit of a, a, grud, a begrudging respect for that, just because, I mean, it was a government, and it was Margaret Thatcher's government, and it was actually um, Norman Fowler, who, who's been really involved in the HIV world uh, ever since. He was the health mm. secretary at the time, and really pushed to have that campaign done. We haven't done a, a, a massive public health campaign around HIV to that scale ever mm, since. since. So mm. in a way, the fact that they did it, it, it is to be applauded. You know, yeah, I mean, it was, and it yeah. was massive. I mean, you, it was all over TV for a week. It's like every house in the country got a leaflet through the door. Mm. Claire Rayner on Good Morning Television putting condoms on bananas and stuff. <laughs> and it was, God, yeah, it was massive. And, yeah. and no one's done, done anything like that before. And mm. I think there's probably is a, an argument for doing something like that. But the downside was that it, it, you know, it, it was very fear-based. It, it was scaremongering. It was really scaremongering. Mm. And that probably then fed into that background of fear. Yeah. And it also, it wasn't targeted. So it, it, in those days, I mean, we would, you know, it was, it was gay men that would get getting the disease and obviously nowadays it's, it's, it's a broader range of people but you know it, it didn't talk specifically about anal sex or about gaming it wasn't particularly focused you, mm. you could argue I mean I still think it was a good thing to do you know but and it's easy to to, to fault it in, in hindsight but you could probably have spent the money perhaps a little bit better really targeting it and mm. maybe tackling some of the stigma and focusing on, on the on the affected community. Mm. But yeah, interesting. I mean, you don't obviously you don't see things like that now, just because the nothing the, yeah, at all actually. Well, you like don't. That, you? you don't. I mean, I think the, the the slight the slight danger is is you know there, there's lots there's lots of really good news about HIV. Mm. So certainly in, in in the UK, we've done really well in terms of tackling the epidemic. You know, the vast majority, ninety two percent of people with HIV in the UK know they have it. Ninety eight percent of those are are, are in care are going to clinics and 97% of those are on effective treatment so we've done incredibly well we're kind of yeah. leading the world on that but it's not gone away you know there are mm. still lots of problems that are associated with it and it's a balance between we, we need to keep talking about it because even though it's different from what it was in 1985 it hasn't gone away and people living with it are still stigmatized yeah. they're still fewer than before but are still getting ill or still mm. 
having problems of living with HIV. Yeah. So mm. I think a lot of, from the epidemic, for obvious reasons, initially in the first couple of decades, a lot of focus was on treatments. It was really on about improving treatment, getting better drugs, getting things that people could take easily mm. without side effects that, that was going to keep them well, but perhaps took the eye off the, the prevention ball a little bit. In other yeah. words, uh, there was a disparate, you know, if you look at the amount of money, for example, that we spend on treatment, compared to the amount of money that we spend, we spend on prevention and mm. stopping people to get from getting it in the first place, is a massive mm. difference. So mm. I think in, the, in those days, there was still sort of 20-30% of people who had the virus and didn't know they had it, So which, yeah. which means that we had to get better at, at testing people. Well, we didn't have anything better than used condoms, and that's completely different now. But you know, in terms of uh, things that we could recommend for people to prevent them from getting HIV. Yeah. Um, so it was a long time before you know things that we have now, like like PrEP. So when did PrEP turn up? When did PrEP appear on the scene? Probably about. I mean, the in the in the UK, the the, the big study kind of showed how effective PrEP was 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 the Proud study, which was actually stopped early mm. because people who were on PrEP were were getting massively less in, uh, HIV infections compared to the people who weren't on PrEP. So they stopped the study early and gave everybody mm. PrEP. That was about 2015, 2016. Oh, God, so not that long ago. So it's not that long ago. I mean, mm. it, PrEP was licensed in America in about 2013, I think. So it's mm. been available there. It was available there first. And the the research that's, that's shown that PrEP's been effective is, you know, goes, goes back even further than that. Mm. So it's kind of been around... So what, maybe five or six years? Yeah. Um, it's still not available or accessible to everybody yet in the UK. What makes you exempt from getting it right well, now? Well, it's just, it depends, where, it depends on where you live, really, to be honest really? with you. Well, so if you live in Scotland, it's available on the NHS. If mm. you live in England, it's only available on uh, what's called the Impact Trial, mm. which has a limited number of places. There are 26,000 places on, on that. I think the other thing that, that, that limits people's ability to get it is just not everybody who's at risk knows about it or mm. has faith and trust in it. And certainly what we've seen when we've, when we've started talking about PrEP, usually uh, gay men who are, mu- who are a bit more knowledgeable or a bit more engaged, um, uh, take, you know, they, they're early adopters, if you like, they take it up very early. But mm. there are other communities like um, black African communities or trans women or trans men or heterosexuals who have some risk who don't have the same level of knowledge so don't know about it or don't think they're the people who would benefit from it or mm. don't go to sexual health services where they can get it so some of the the limited limitations to access is just people's knowledge so we mm. to do more about telling people since it got introduced have they improved it or has it just stayed the same well in terms of the the, the, the actual the drug actual itself, itself. no yeah. they're not really but it's just the same so the drugs we use now are the, the same drugs that we've always used the only difference really is that now they're cheaper so right. the, the branded drug that we used to used to use is called Truvada but now it's it's patent has expired which means that mm. it can be made much cheaper now so mm. which is great for a system like the health service mm. where you know funds are limited and about 90-95% cheaper than mm. by a generic version so so the cost has come down a lot but it's exactly the same drug as we've always yeah. used while we're on the subject of PrEP, yeah. I didn't realise we were going to talk about it so quickly, actually. <laughs> but while we're on the subject of it, I wanted to ask you, do you think that PrEP has made the scene more promiscuous in terms of, like, you know, the sexual scene? Yeah. Do you think it's encouraged it? Because, obviously, it's helping with HIV, yeah. but it doesn't sort of prevent 
other no, STDs. Yeah. Do they still call them STDs? I keep hearing STIs. Like STIs. Transmitted infections. Infections. It's just the disease is a bit kind of like pejorative. It's a bit kind yeah. of like, uh, yeah. I, I, I keep hearing these STIs. I'm old school. I still call them STDs. STIs yeah. still exist, don't yeah. they? Other ones and. Have they found that there's been an increase in those yeah. because of PrEP? Yeah, there has been an Well, there has been an increase. There is there is an increase in STIs. If we think, if we talk particularly about uh, gay men, because they're, they're the group who are, who are taking the, the, the single... The majority that are taking, taking PrEP. PrEP. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So STIs, particularly gonorrhea and syphilis, are, are going up year on year, pretty much. But that rise started going up before PrEP was available. Right. So it, does PrEP cause people to get more STIs? To, to some extent it does, because mm. you, you're, you're, you're right. It's, it enables you to have condomless sex without worrying about HIV. Mm. But it doesn't stop you from getting other sexually transmitted infections. So yeah. it's not causing that rise. It might be adding to that rise, but actually what a lot of us think who are you know, real advocates of PrEP is actually... Prep is not actually. Prep isn't just about stopping you from getting getting HIV. Prep should be delivered as part of a broader sexual health package. Right. So, so in other words, to get prep, you have to go to a sexual health clinic. To get prep, you have to have uh, checkups for sexually transmitted infections every three months. Mm. So, actually, prep is a way of engaging with people who are already having condomless sex mm. and getting them to come into clinic and have checkups and tests for sexually transmitted infections that they may not have done otherwise. Yeah. So what we are actually starting to see is that sexually transmitted infections are being diagnosed a little bit earlier than they would have done before. Mm. So actually the rise in STIs is, is not just about behaviour. It's not just right. about the kind of sex people are having. It's also about the fact that we're doing more tests mm. because people are coming into clinic more often mm. and, we're, and we're diagnosing things earlier. So I actually believe that the prep ultimately will cause a reduction in sexual transmission okay. infections, just yeah. because it's it's arrived it's into a population that was already having a lot of condomless mm. sex, that already had high and increasing rates of sexually transmitted infection. But it's a tool for us to mm. engage with those people who perhaps weren't coming to clinics before. Yeah, yeah, and diagnose sexual transmitted infections earlier, which then stops them from being transmitted onto other people, which should see hopefully. A, Yes, an initial increase in STIs, but then hopefully a drop in STIs mm. as mm. we're actually able to tackle them yeah. earlier. And also, you know, the, the messaging around PrEP and the advice we give around PrEP, it, you know, it's not just about throwing throwing away the condoms. And actually, mm. it's about using all of those tools together. So you've got something that you can be confident that will stop you from getting HIV. Mm. But, you know, it's not about not using condoms. If you want to protect yourself from other sexually transmitted infections, use yeah. condoms. And actually, I find in the clinic, you know, some people never use condoms when they're on PrEP, but a lot of people sometimes use condoms, sometimes don't mm. use condoms. I think it also, one of the things about, about PrEP is it, it encourages a bit of a dialogue mm. about HIV status, about sexual health risk. So I think it enables people to make more choice, informed mm. choice about the kind of sex they have, whether they choose to use a condom or not. When you see rates in anything going up, it doesn't necessarily mean that that disease is getting worse. It just means that you've got a better test, so you're picking up things that you missed before. Yeah. People are better, at, for using the cancer example, are better at going for screening, so it's picked up earlier. Yeah. The same with, with HIV. And if you get better at, at testing people who are at risk of HIV, your mm. HIV rates go up. But that's a yeah. good thing, yeah. because we're identifying HIV that may have been missed, or mm. we might not have found until it was much later on. I want to let people know that you also worked for the Terence Higgins Trust, don't you? Yeah, I still do. And yeah. you still do. What does your work involve there? So I'm the medical director for the Terence Higgins Trust. So I'm responsible, it sounds 
sounds a bit grand, but I'm, I'm responsible for the for the clinical governance and safeguarding of the organisation. So the Tennessee Kings Trust, if people don't know, is it's a big, I think it's the largest sexual health and HIV charity in Europe. It, it's been going for a, a, a long time, over 30 years. It's named after Terry Higgins, who was one of the first people to die from AIDS in England. It was set up as a support group initially by by his partner and his, his friends, and it's grown over the decades since then. And we provide a range of services around HIV and sexual health. So we do a lot of prevention stuff. So we do a lot of testing, HIV testing. We do a lot of health promotion. We do, do a lot of campaigning and policy work to try and improve the situation in general. Mm. We provide support and advice services. We've got telephone helplines. We provide counselling. And we provide clinical services. And that's really where my role comes in. So it, it was in about 2007, I think, we moved into delivering more clinical services but prior to that it used to be much more around supports mm. bodying advice counseling for people diagnosed recently diagnosed or living with hiv mm. but then we moved into delivering more clinical services so things like hiv testing services or chlamydia screening services or sexual health services where you mm. could get sti checkups or you could get contraception so we moved into being more of a provider of clinical services so mm. to do that it needs some medical input to make sure that all of those services are kind of safe and yeah high quality and, and working yeah correctly. exactly so yeah. i oversee all of that and then I advise the organisation from a clinical mm. point of view. Yeah, just do it a day a week. So even though it's a really relatively small part of my week, it's it actually is for me personally massively impactful <laughs> and yeah. enjoyable, and it, and it, I feel really sort of blessed and really fortunate because it's quite unusual for a, an NHS doctor to also work for a charity. Mm. I think it just gives you a really different perspective you yeah know, I, I learn a lot from doing that because you work on the can't pass it on campaign as well don't yeah. you which yeah. is about spreading the word with hiv on effective treatment yeah, yeah. that's something i it's one of the things that i'm most proud of proud of i mean i didn't just do it myself but as an organization because we were one of the first organizations to come out and start really definitively spreading the word about can't pass it on which basically means that when somebody's hiv positive and they're taking their treatment regularly and have what we call an undetectable viral load. So that means that the drugs are suppressing the virus maximally. So the virus is still there, but it just can't be detected by the machines in the lab, so it's called having an undetectable viral load. Mm -hmm. And there was some research uh, that came out about 2016, 2017, that showed that if you have an undetectable viral load, you have a zero risk of passing the virus on to others. And that is a really massive, mm -hmm. important, sort of powerful message. And yeah. as an organisation, it was we felt it was really important to to get that out. So we've done kind of three iterations of the Can't Pass It On campaign, mm. 2017, 2018, and we're doing another one now. Because it, I think it's just, it's really important for us to get that, partly to let people live with HIV know about it. For years, the only thing that we've been able to offer people to, to stop transmission to others is, is condoms. You know, mm. There's a lot of fear and shame that people carry around with them when they're HIV positive. And just yeah. you know, that fear of not wanting it to give it to somebody else. So to be able to say... Mm take your tablets and you can be 100% confident you won't give it to somebody. It's yeah. really liberating. Mm. No, I have a, an old friend who committed suicide because <clears throat> when he found out it was yeah. HIV, he just couldn't cope. Yeah. I mean, this was in the 90s, quite a long time ago now. Yeah. But yeah, he just couldn't handle yeah. it. And it's such a shame because if you think, and if he was alive now, yeah, it, or, or if he so was able to hang on or was got the support to hang on, you're right, yeah. it is completely different. Yeah. You know, our messaging now is so positive mm. around HIV, and that, you know, that's how we encourage people to test or mm. encourage people to take treatment. Is that you know, if you're diagnosed, if you're not, if you're diagnosed early and you get started on treatment, you can expect 
yeah. normal life expectancy mm. and you can be 100% certain. Because I've got other friends who are on medication. They've been HIV for quite a few years and they're on the medica- they're on medication. Yeah. They're still alive. They're yeah. still here. I almost forget yeah. that they're HIV, yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. because uh, <clears throat> obviously they're living with it and they have to deal with whatever they deal with, you know, personally. But I think in terms of them being around and alive mm. and getting on with their lives, they're still getting on with it. And that's quite amazing. It's you really know. amazing. And that's kind of how what I say to my patients. I, I want them to get to the point where they're doing everything that they would have done when, you know, whether or not they were HIV positive. Yeah. And that is completely, you know, completely achievable. Mm. So you should be able to forget about it other than, you know, having to take your tablets every yeah. day. And, you know, even people, most people that I see now who are so well, they come in every six months or even some of them just once a year. Mm. And, and so for the majority of people, and that's, and it's growing, they don't really need an HIV specialist anymore. Mm. And I rarely see people now who have HIV related diseases, but you see people who have other things, which mm. sometimes does interact with their HIV or with the drugs they're taking for HIV. And it's more like the diseases of aging, you know, because it used to be that you didn't get old enough to have heart attacks or strokes <laughs> yeah. or develop diabetes but so it's all of those things that are now becoming a thing and mm. and there's still you know it's, it's not to take away the fact that it can still be a real challenge and a struggle for many people living with HIV mm. and the rates of mental health problems you know stigma and discrimination so it's more about supporting people to live well and thrive with their HIV mm. rather than it is increasingly rare now dealing yeah. with HIV related diseases mm. because we can prevent those now. yeah so tell us about your new position that's your new wonderful position it is a wonderful position and, um, I love it anyway. yeah which obviously I was told about through well through Matthew Osborne yeah. and then also mutual friend Wendy yeah. Rowe the lovely Wendy one of the reasons why I wanted to interview was because of this yeah. and I want to know more about it because I don't know a huge amount about what it is I just know you've got this new position yeah. and it's supposed to be amazing and I need to talk to you about it so <laughs> let's go for it well, <laughs> I think it's amazing, but yeah, I'll let you and the listeners do it. I'm sure it will be, because um, everything else you've done is pretty amazing. <laughs> Thank you. So yeah, I'm the National Advisor for LGBT Health, which is a completely new role, and I was appointed about six months ago. The history of the, the job is, came from the government's uh, National LGBT Survey. So in 2017, the government did this huge survey asking about lots of different things. Pe- LGBT people's experience of living in the UK. It asks things about health, it asks things about criminal justice, education, workplace, discrimination, stigma, it asked a broad range of questions. And mm. it was it was open for just three months, but it had 108,000 responses. It's the largest ever survey of its kind in the world. And there was a lot of learning that came from that. And then the government uh, published in 2017, 2018, the National LGBT Action Plan, which is the government's commitment to do things about all of these issues that were raised in the survey. Mm-hmm. And it's got a section on health, and there were 12 commit- commitments in the health section. And one commitment was that we will they will appoint a national advisor. So mm-hmm. that's me. I, I, did you have to apply for the oh, job, yeah, or yeah, did yeah. they come no, no, to you? No, 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 I had to apply for it. In fact, yeah. I, I, was, I was vaguely aware about it, um, but a friend of mine saw the advert, actually, and said, oh, you should go for that, that'd be, um, mm. that'd be right up your street. So I, I owe him a great debt of gratitude, actually, because I might have missed it otherwise. It's an interesting role, so it's, as I say, it's a new role, no one's ever done it before, and, and I'm employed by NHS England, so NHS England's sort of a big organisation that you know, can lead on the policy and the strategy for the, mm. for the NHS, but my funding comes from government, so the money for my role 
comes from the government qualities office, so yeah. have a foot in two camps, if you like, and I do the job part-time alongside my other things. And essentially, the broad aims of the role are to reduce health inequalities for LGBT individuals uh, and to improve experience in healthcare. Because there's lots and lots and lots of studies. In fact, almost every study that you, you look at shows that LGBT individuals, so those who've got a minority sexual orientation or are non-binary in terms of how they identify in terms of their gender, do much worse than heterosexual or cisgendered peers. So there are much higher rates of mental health problems, for example. They report poorer experience in terms of their interactions with healthcare professionals. They're more likely to smoke, to drink, which is tied into the mental health things. There's outcomes which are which are worse, you know, chronic disease, experience of end of life care. There's loads of areas across the whole of. In fact, it's almost it's practically impossible to find an area where an LGBT <laughs> individual does better than others. Mm. And I think so. That's what really kind of fires me up about it. One, the size of the problem, and I'd like mm. a challenge, and it is a challenge. But also just the you know the the the, the need to do something about it. Yeah. So I think that's that's what really drove me to do it, and it kind of ties in a lot with the things that I've done before. You know, working in HIV, you work with obviously work with with, with gay men a lot, but you you work with a lot of marginalised groups or dis- individuals or groups who are disadvantaged, and it very much tied into mm. to that. And to get to get things done, this role will it will require me to kind of work across right. different organisations, government, health service, charitable, the the, the community sector, and so mm. my experience of working at Terrace Singers Trust also kind of helps I think you know mm. so having a foot in the NHS and a foot in the community sector as well. yeah yeah so it, it's early days for the job and I, I, we've, we've kind of got a few priorities that we're, we're focusing on at the moment one of them is about it sounds a bit dry but it's, it's about data data collection and monitoring mm. I just kind of really believe that you don't understand the problem until you measure it mm. so we're doing a lot of work to try and really embed the process of people asking questions about sexual orientation and gender identity when and then you go to your GP or when you go to A&E or you go to a hospital outpatient mm. clinic because if we don't measure it it's a bit like you're know, asking about ethnicity we know that there's real differences in experience for different ethnic groups uh, we know in some settings, uh, you know, women fare worse than men. We know in some settings, older people. So were, were you really used to asking, you know, are you male, female? Are you, what age are you? What ethnicity are you? Mm-hmm. The reason that we, we give our postcodes is because, you know, there are some areas where deprivation or, you know, or lower income would make your health outcomes worse. So mm-hmm. we need to think about the LGBT experience in the same way. And so to get the first step of that is we have to kind of get everybody comfortable to ask the questions because then you understand what the problems are yeah yeah it's also about it's also about making it making healthcare inclusive so in other words what i mean by that is that it shouldn't matter who you are or what you look like or how you define yourself your experience of going through the health service which we all pay for should should be be exactly the same yeah so if you identify as a trans man or a trans woman or a non-binary you shouldn't be forced to tick a box that just says male or female because mm. that initially says to you this service doesn't understand me doesn't recognize me is not is excluding mm. me so actually you know, I, I reflect on so I remember when um, 
Um, because people actually can't see this, but I'm mixed race. And I remember when I started, was old enough to start to fill in the census forms. Mm. There wasn't a box for me to take. <laughs> you know, it was, it just, I just had to do other. Yeah. There wasn't, um, and it's changed now because there is a box for me now, which is mixed white and black Caribbean. Yeah. But at that, I felt really excluding. You know, so yeah. I would either stop doing the survey or I would write something really complicated in the free text box, <laughs> which they wouldn't be able to analyse. In the but other it, bit. It, I know, exactly. yeah. it really yeah. annoyed me. And it's the same. Mm. It's the same thing, you know. So it's funny in a way, is it? Because it's like you say, they need to gather data. Yeah. So they need that information. But then at the same time, because I wanted to talk to you about this actually, yeah. at the same time, it's almost like, why do we have to tick any boxes at yeah, all? Yeah, yeah. Because for me, I always think to get full equality, then they shouldn't have to differentiate one person from another. Same as with the whole, you know, sort of male, female, then all the other genres that are going on. And. Because I wanted to talk to you about this, because obviously your role is called for the LGBT health, yeah. which is lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans. Yeah. But I don't know whether you've seen, but there's been a whole thing about Piers Morgan and this. Have yeah. you seen it? On yeah. are you allowed to talk about that? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this was my controversial question. Was it? Go on yeah. Then. yeah. <laughs> I watched it yeah. on Good Morning Britain. I'm, I'm going to say right now, I'm not the biggest fan of Piers Morgan. No, I'll be honest know. with you. Uh, however, occasionally I do think he makes some good points. Okay. Not anybody. I think, you know, not everybody's bad right the way through. For some reason, I turn it on and watch him, when, even though he annoys the hell out of me and I want to punch the <laughs> sometimes. Just like, oh, it's just being so, like, pedantic and oh. just doing it, you know, because he can. But this particular situation, he had this gay activist, Ben Butterworth, yeah. on, who appeared on the programme alongside transgender broadcaster India Willoughby yeah. after... Piers Morgan had made a statement about a BBC programme. I'm only saying this story, you probably know this already, but for anybody who's listening who doesn't know the story. And in the film, they claim that there are now a hundred different genders in the LGBTQ, however many other letters now exist on the end of it. But he just said it's ridiculous that there's so many genders now. But his comments incensed, has incensed some members of the community. He identifies as a two-spirit penguin. So this gay activist went nuts Mm. and basically was trying to get Piers Morgan sacked. Mm. So they got him on with India Willoughby. And it was really interesting, the conversation, because obviously this kid was going for Piers Morgan Mm. like crazy, going, you know, all these different genders exist and you're being, you know, you're being disrespectful, da-da-da-da. But then, interestingly, India Willoughby Mm. is a trans... She was basically having a go at the boy because she said... She thinks some of the LGBT activists have made a mockery of the transgender debate and it's made her ashamed to identify as trans now. And she said, it took me half a lifetime to become who I am today. Most, and she said, I like to call us transitioners, which is what I call them, now have no commitment. They float from this and that. And she said, I no longer identify as trans because it's become so embarrassing and I'm ashamed. She said, I don't accept that there are a hundred genders. I don't need gay people to represent me. Being trans isn't the same as being gay. Which, and I have to say, I found it interesting that she was really against this kid, but my, I wanted to talk to you about this because my feeling on it is, where have all these hundred genders come from? And what do you feel about that as somebody that's working in this community? Sure. Well, that's a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I mean, I think for me, the starting point is that you know, gender dysphoria or, or not feeling that your gender is the same as the sex that you were assigned at birth yeah. is a real thing, yeah, for sure. 
undoubtedly. I mean, I do, I do a clinic every week at, at King's for trans and non-binary people. You know, these these are real people with real real experiences. So, gender dysphoria. Just explain or, to anybody who doesn't know, even like, what is non-binary considered. So, so basically, I mean, if the binary, I guess, is, is either or. Yeah. So, so you know, we, most of us have grown up knowing male and female, yeah. and that's binary, one or one or the other. Mm. So, um, in the in in the sort of broader gender area, there are people who will identify as a trans man. Mm-hmm. So that would be somebody whose sex that they were assigned or was recorded at birth was female, mm-hmm. but they feel that their gender, which is different from your sex, mm-hmm. so your gender, you know, how you identify, is male. Mm-hmm. Someone that's a trans male would be somebody who would have been assigned sex of female at birth, but feels that their gender is, is male, and then they would mm-hmm. transition to, to, to being a male. And trans female, the... The, the other way round. Non-binary is a gender is a gender identity that that just feels like that they, they can't categorise into either of those. Yes, yeah. which is what Sam Smith, the singer, has yeah, exactly, said he is exactly. Now, and yeah. I think you know a, a lot of the things that we think about gender are social constructs. You know yeah. what we think about what what it is it to be a, to be man or masculine, what it is to be female or or, or mm. feminine. A lot of that is defined by society, and different societies define it differently. Mm. So, you know, and I think it's like sexuality, you know, it, it's, it, it, but it almost feels like our thinking as a society is further behind, you know, mm. we're, we're, we're kind of getting, we're not quite there yet, but it, it's more acceptable that sexuality is, is a spectrum, yeah. you know, is, you know you're, not, you're not necessarily just one or the other, yeah. we need to think of, of, of gender in the, in the same way, there are some mm. who are uh, absolutely one end, I'm male, I'm female, and there are some that are somewhere in the, in the middle, which is where the non-binary and this this thing, which I think is anyway, this is the hundred hundred um, genders. Yeah, I mean, I think it's I think what that is is it's more about there are a hundred different ways. I mean, I haven't even seen the hundred. I don't know where <laughs> don't know where it comes from. But what yeah. I do know is that there are many different ways that people would identify themselves. Yeah, and that's fine. So if you if you think that male or female or non-binary or gender fluid or or queer are not words that suit you. Mm then you create another word, and that's yeah. kind of fine. I think that's where this hundred thing comes from. Do you know what and my I... concern, though, is, Michael, just very quickly, sorry to interrupt, mm. but is that, isn't it creating more boxes for people to be in? And the whole point back in the day was to try and get us out of boxes and just be. Do you know I what think? I mean? But I think the argument would be that these people are just being, and actually they're being trying to be... You know, they, they want they, to they, identify they, as something. But I think what, what it's saying is, is that, is that the, the definitions of gender are much broader yeah. than we've traditionally thought they are. Mm. And actually what we're trying to move from now is a, is a place where people were forced into those two binary boxes, male or female, and mm. shift to a system where we're much, we are much more able to recognise mm. and affirm or what somebody's identity is. I think, you know, the, the whole that whole Piers Morgan thing, I mean, it, well, there's a couple of things. One is there's a toxicity and a contra- controversy about this anyway, yeah. uh, which is out there, you know, and, you know, and we, we things like transphobic or, or homophobic hate crime is rising, you know, and I think that mm. people have to be careful about, you know, every, free speech, absolutely, everybody can have opinions, but you have to be very careful about mm. what, what what's that plugging into or what, what is that yeah. reinforcing, this kind of background of unpleasant pleasantness. But, you know, they mock somebody because they, they want to define themselves in some way or they are, they do mm-hmm. define themselves in some way is just ridiculous, really. Mm-hmm. I think. And I think, I think you, you said something earlier which, was, which I think is true and interesting, but in the sense that 
wouldn't it be great if we didn't have to ask all of these questions? Yeah. But the thing is that we do have to ask these questions because it, it isn't great. You know, because right. we don't live in a society where mm. people are equal. We don't live in a society where people are not judged. We don't yeah. live in a society. So actually, you know, if, we, if you treated, and it's the difference between, not getting all intellectual now, but the difference between equ equality and equity. Mm. So equality would be, oh, we just treat everybody exactly the yeah. same. Yeah. Equity is about saying, recognising that some groups are disadvantaged, mm. whether it's because of their ethnicity, because of their social class, because of their mental health problems, because of their gender identity, because of their sexual orientation, because they're disabled. They're, they're disadvantaged, mm. so the system doesn't treat them equally. Yeah. So you have to give them a step, a step up, if you like. You mm. have to address their specific needs. And part of that is about starting from the point of acknowledging and recognising it, yeah. not dismissing it. Mm. And so I think why, you know, the debate is important, and I would never want to shut it down, but I think mm. it's always important that particularly people that have a, you know, a big public platform, uh, you know, should be, should be more responsible about it. And I followed that a lot of that on social media. And I know India got a, a lot of flat from the trans community. But mm. then also I think one remember that, you know, these are all individuals. So everybody's mm. opinions are equally valid and should not be yeah. diminished or, or shut down. But also I think, you know, it's like the social media thing in general is, is that I think we sometimes have to be cautious not to set too much store on what gets yeah. shouted out on Twitter yeah. because you can get a lot of visibility by shouting on Twitter but actually that's the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> yeah. below, below that there's just a bunch yeah. of people living their lives getting mm. on with it not you know not kind not of, on Twitter at all not on Twitter at all <laughs> yeah. yeah and that's that's who I see my job is for yeah you know the, the lesbian gay bisexual trans or any identifying groups who are That's not what I getting... wanted to ask you because it says because your title is well, only. Do you go I beyond that? Well, I, I just stop at the T. <laughs> That's where I was trying to get to with this Where question. Yeah, no, I, I get that question as well. So in my job description and on my contract, it says LGBT. Yeah. I, I often will just put a plus on the end of that to recognise that it's not just those four. Mm. But I, I, I don't go on the LGBTQI. Yeah, how not, many letters not, are there now? I don't I think, even know. I think it's hundred. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, don't, I think I, the longest I've seen is LGBTQI plus, right. but I think I think the plus is important because it because it, again it just recognises that you know I'm not I'm not or we're not stopping at the LGB and yeah. and mm. that sexual orientation and particularly gender identity is much broader than that. Mm. But just for simplicity, as a quick stop, I just say LGBT. So they don't run out of space. No, exactly. <laughs> my, business, my long business card. Which, uh, yeah. <laughs> I have in um, uh, landscape. Yeah. <laughs> it's interesting, though, isn't it? So I mean, because even for me as a gay man, for mm. you, you know, we've grown up in different times as yeah. teenagers and in our twenties. Which, you know, I was I was saying to some a really young model the other day, I was like, you know, when I was growing up, being gay was just really hard yeah. compared to how it is now. Yeah. Where it's almost like it's quite trendy to be gay, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Without making a mockery of it. Yeah. But it's kind of it's so much easier now than it used to be. Yeah. But I feel like I'm trying to get my head around all these changes that are going on. And, you know, even like that, it's taken me ages to figure out what they meant by cisgender. Because I was yeah. like, because this boy again, yeah. Piers Morgan said to him, well, what do you do identify as? And he said, cisgender male. Yeah. And then Piers Morgan was like, well, what is that? And he went, well, I'm a male identify as a male. I'm like, and in my head, I was like, well, isn't that just male then? I don't know. I was, I was like, well, I'm no, really confused. Well, no, because you could be a trans male. So, so right. in other words, so so but you're right. One thing is is 
you you absolutely and we should all acknowledge that that, that is, this is stuff that we don't all understand no. and is constantly evolving mm. and also and I think that's fine to say that you don't have to get it right you don't have to know about it mm. but you just have to be open to it and you just mm. have to not judge it's yeah. interesting you know you said you were saying about you know back in the day it was difficult growing up as a as a as a, as a young gay man now it's really difficult growing up as a young trans man or a young yeah. trans woman you know so I mm. think that's what we need to keep reminding ourselves of that it's you know it's a group of people who are are having the same levels or maybe more of stigma and discrimination that mm. gay and lesbians uh, did in the past or mm. black people did in the past or women mm. did in the past you know and I think that's why I was we should challenge ourselves to stop when we're having very strong opinion and just think you know mm. where is that where is that really coming from is, yeah. is am, I, am I actually really as, but I'm saying as, that as I mean like I, I've got friends of mine who um, had a daughter and basically when she reached 14, 15, she announced she wanted to be a boy mm. and was going to an all-girls school. Mm. This is just on the outskirts of London and was allowed to start dressing as a boy, be mm. called a boy's name mm. in the girls' school mm. and has now become a yeah. man, become male. Yeah. And I remember when they... This was probably about five, six years mm. ago this happened. I mm. remember at the time thinking, my God, how things and times have changed no, definitely. compared to, again, when we were... Yeah. At that age, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. that would never have happened. Though. Never have happened. No, no, never Can you imagine should. going to school saying, I'm, no. "I'm coming dressed as another gender," no. but also being in an all-girls school yeah. and allowed to go yeah. as as a boy in the all-girls yeah. school. That, that that's what gives me hope because mm. I, I mean, I've got friends in similar situations, and then you know, kids kids are just fine about it. You know, they don't have these yeah. kinds of hang-ups that, that no. people of a certain age have about it, which so is amazing, isn't it? It, is. really? it just kind of shows that, that again, it's it's you know, that, that if you have a problem with trans people or with gay people you know you've learned that you know that's that's a that's a social thing that's not a that's not a real thing yeah you know and the same stories i know lots of young kids they don't even bat an eyelid about that you know people transitioning or, or changing their gender in, right. in school and you know I've, I've known kids of friends of mine who've started changing their pronouns from she to they oh, to and them, them yeah. in solidarity with a with a trans kid in their class. They don't even give it a second thought. And mm-hmm. So that's how we should all be about it, really. Yeah. But, but I think it's also it's a, it's fine to 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 not feel comfortable about it or to feel challenged about it because mm-hmm. it is new. I mean, it's not common or usual for yeah. us to call people they rather no. than he or she. Well, they is also considered plural, isn't it? Well, no, exactly. <laughs> so it doesn't feel right to start with because mm. we're not used to it. But if somebody, if that's how somebody wants to be referred, then that's how we should refer to them. Mm. You know, that that's like me just calling you Brendan instead of Neil because <laughs> I just choose to. And you'll Please say, don't. My name's Neil. <laughs> <laughs> I just, just call. Do I look like a Brenda? Know where that came from. <laughs> that's the least thing that you look like. <laughs> anyway, but but I think it's fine for us to feel feel uncomfortable, but recognise that discomfort. And yeah. I think, do think that some of the negativity comes from people's. You know, it, you know, a lot of stigma and discrimination comes from the fact that people don't understand or feel threatened. Yeah, you know, so it's a lack it's, of education for one of them, and it? a lack of empathy. You know, yeah, that's the other thing to be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Yeah, because I think that's the thing for me. I and because obviously growing up as a gay man, I, I feel like I want to be aware of everything that's happening and changing yeah. and how things are evolving. Yeah. And I don't want to be. I don't want to be ignorant to it. Yeah. You know. Some of it I've found a little difficult to get my head around because yeah. there is so many changes now that yeah. you are a bit like, oh my God, like I so say, all these different genders. I was yeah. like, I don't know what they mean. Yeah. Should I know what they mean? Well, is it bad? I don't know what they mean. It's not you bad know that you mean? don't know what they mean. No. And I think so you just ask or yeah. you Google it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> Sometimes you read the description on Google on whatever and you're a bit like, I still don't understand what that means. <laughs> 
maybe that's just me being a bit stupid. Maybe, but no, I think I think a lot of people are like that. And so yeah, it's, it's it's about it's about just recognizing it and and learning about it. just normalizing yeah. it. Yeah, really. So oh god, just don't. Like, I worked with a model recently um, who, on the call sheet of the job, it said you have to refer to them as he, they, or them, and. Of course, what did I do? <laughs> when they came out with yeah. a dress on, I went, yeah. oh, she looks amazing. Yeah, and, and then I was like, shit, I wasn't meant to say just, that. I think that's the thing, you'll trip up on it, because it's not common, it's not usual. Yeah. You're, you're almost like your brain in your mouth is not used to it. No. And you see feminine, and you think, she. Yeah. It, but it really doesn't take very long to... to, to no. And, it, you know, we... You know, it's I, a bit it's of it's just a mind shift, it. isn't it? I, don't, I definitely don't get it right all the time. No. And I just apologise and say, look, I'm sorry for... The challenge is good. Yeah. Right? It's really just challenging what we've historically or traditionally thought of as yeah. male, That's female. That's what it is really, actually, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. It's just about challenging what we know. Yeah, exactly. Or what we think we've... And being known. able to evolve. So you're going back to your new job, as yeah, in I'm what it actually is. Are you enjoying it? I'm really loving it. Yeah, yeah I'm super loving it. I've got a really great little team. So I there's just a small team. I'd say I just do it part-time, but I've got a full-time programme manager... Busy, she's amazing, and a full-time PA, Vicky, was also amazing. So they might make my life really easy. Yeah, we're a, we're a great little team, and we're getting our teeth into some stuff. So we're now kind of, so let's say, six months in. So feet under the table, kind of done all the introductory stuff, done all the thinking, and now started moving into yeah. Into the and how are stuff. you getting it out there that you're doing this? What's the you know how are they sort of letting people know that this now um, exists? So I mean, when when I was appointed, there was some press release stuff around it. I, I did, that that visibility thing is really important to me because I think the other thing that it, it, it's really important for me on this role is 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 to, to connect with the people that I'm trying to make a, a difference for or mm. to or with. And so the community, particularly, you know, so being visible and being mm. contactable and um, you know, people are aware of what I'm doing and being able to feed into it is really important to me. So. We, we have a reasonable amount of stuff out on Twitter every now and then. And occasionally when we've done something, we have, you know, there's press team at NHS England. We'll put so for anyone that's out. listening, can you let them know what, what it is? <laughs> on my Twitter, Twitter Yeah, so they can so, follow you. Yeah, and please well. do come and find me. So I'm at Dr. M. Brady. So at D-R-M-B-R-A-D-Y. Right. I'm Dr. M. Brady on Twitter. Mm. So yes, but I think people can get in touch with me through there. Um, we're going to have a website soon, so we should have that launched. It's been a slightly torturous process getting it all mm-hmm. done and agreed and signed off, but that, that will be another way that people will be able to see what we're doing yeah. and also to get in touch with... Because I feel like even just hearing about it now, the visibility thing is really important by now, isn't it, to it, know that it's out there. It is really important, because, I, and I think it's it's about knowing that there is somebody who's doing something or has got your back, although yeah. I must say I'm not the only person that's doing stuff in this field, <laughs> You know, because well, the other thing that's made it really pleasant and and enjoyable is that I'm kind of pushing on an op- open doors. You know, I've, since I was appointed, I've not found it difficult. Right. You know, people are already doing amazing stuff mm. in, around addressing LGBT health inequalities in the NHS, in the charity sector, all around the country, and people are thinking about it and people are wanting to do things about it. So it's mm. actually made my job relatively Great. easy. So mm. uh, in that sense, so obviously it's not just not just me. There's a, there's a lot of people doing a lot. Of great stuff the system can feel very obstructive mm. and that's one of the things that I really want to change but yeah. knowing that there's someone or people mm. that recognise that and are really doing things about it mm. is important got a commitment in the in the UK to end HIV transmissions in the UK by 2030 
so what's that, 11 years, and it's completely doable. Do you think so? I would never have said that five or ten years ago. Mm. In fact, you would have just been laughed at if you said that yeah. ten years ago. Mm. So it, it is really, it, we just need to get better, even better at testing, get everybody who needs PrEP on PrEP, mm. and, and then you know, and make sure that people who know that they're positive are on treatment as soon as possible. Mm. Another so question was, about PrEP, are there any side effects? Uh, you can get side effects. They're, they're, they're really uncommon, though, I would mm. say. So most people, I'd say, easily 90, 95% of people feel completely fine. Mm. So side effects are really rare. We don't really worry about them that so much, particularly when you weigh it against the massive positive benefits. Mm. Like you just won't get HIV when you're on PrEP. Some people get a little bit of, ton of tummy upset stuff in the first few days That's the because they're the same drugs that we use to treat HIV as well. And it's quite common to feel a little bit... Maybe a little bit bloated, maybe a bit nauseous. It's never bad. People don't need to take time off work. But it's kind of like your, your body's kind of aware that you're taking them for a few days. Yeah. And then that usually settles down. So, as I said, after the first few days, most people feel completely fine. And the only thing that we look out for is that one of the drugs can affect your kidney function. Mm. So, if you're on PrEP, it's really important to have regular kidney function checks. Mm. But for most people, it's not a big deal because most people who are on PrEP are young and fit and healthy it becomes mm. a your risk of getting kidney problems goes up a little bit if you're mm. older or if you've already got some kidney disease or you've got other problems like diabetes or maybe you're taking medication that might affect your kidneys but mm. in all of the studies it's if it happens it's usually mild and if it happens it's usually reversible in other words you can mm. reduce the dose or stop the pack and um, things usually go back to normal. So saying that, people don't really get side effects from their HIV drugs now. Because and if they do, we've got so many choices that we switch them. Yeah. But I think because it and it is really important to tell everybody about potential side effects. We almost slightly overegg it. You know, so you tell everybody what might happen. Yeah. But not. So everybody kind of thinks that it's more likely to happen than it actually, mm. actually is. Yeah, they'd be like, oh, that didn't happen, actually. Well, that's, 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 that's yeah. the commonest reaction. For whether people start PrEP or whether they start HIV treatment, the first appointment they come back, they go, oh, mm. never, I feel fine. It's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. So it's important to talk about side effects, but, but recognise they're really, really uncommon. Mm. One other question, because of what a lot of people in this LGBTQI plus yeah. community deal with there's a lot of mental health yeah. issues as well isn't yeah. there for people obviously some people take medication other people do other things for that do the drugs for hiv and prep does that affect that any of those i'm only thinking of people that might be listening that kind yeah. of you know what i mean yeah um, no, and also i'm intrigued too no, to sure know. i mean you're, you're right that i mean if you're going to pick one thing that is is massively massively a problem for the lgbt plus community is it's mental health i mean yeah. there's lots and lots of other problems but you know the 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 increased rates basically of every mental health problem whatever you look at whether it's depression anxiety mm. eating disorders self-harm suicide they're all much higher if you're lesbian mm. gay or bisexual and they're even higher if you're trans or non-binary mm. so it's mm. a massive massive problem for the community and it you know it's kind of understandable i mean you know there's nothing about being gay or trans per se that makes you more likely to have mental health problems it's about the fact that you've grown up in a society mm. where you felt you know marginalized or discriminated against yeah. or or had problems coming out or being a victim of homophobic or transphobic abuse you know the mm-hmm. society creates those problems it's, it's not about being born gay or trans yeah. per se but anyway so so i mean and that is a real focus of 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 my my new job really looking at how we can better support whether that you know mental health problems in the LGBT community, whether that's with specific LGBT focus services or um, just making the general 
mental health services are better for LGBT people. Mm. So it's a big problem, but to actually answer your question, <laughs> the PrEP or HIV drugs won't cause a, a, a problem for okay. those. I mean, there, there are, there are a, a couple of drugs that, that can make existing mental health problems worse, but we just wouldn't use those in mm. people who we know have mental health problems. Okay, brilliant. Well, thank you. Before we finish, Michael, you've got to do my rapid fire okay. questions, <laughs> which is now the not so serious bit. Yeah. <laughs> what do you do in your spare time? Watch a lot of telly. <laughs> <laughs> Netflix addict. Oh, really? Yeah. What do you prefer, box sets or Oh, no, films? definitely a box set. I hardly ever watch films on, on Netflix. I right. mean, other streaming systems do... Yeah, you know, are available obviously. No, no box sets completely, and I get really excited. So I know this is more than a word. But when you started something that you haven't seen, and there's like six seasons. Oh, I love to, that. Yeah, I know, it's yeah. really annoying yeah. if there's only one season. It's like really Pose good. has just started, but I don't want to watch one yet, the, no, like, no. the second season, because I want to watch. I want to yeah, binge no, exactly, watch. Exactly, I can't yeah. wait for another week. Yeah. What's your favourite food? Indian. Indian. Okay. Um, what's your guilty pleasure? It's a good one. Carnation milk, evaporated milk. Oh, I love I drink that. it out of a can. Do you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's filth. That feels, it is filthy, <laughs> isn't it? Feels like maybe it's a good. We used to have it at home all the time as a kid. Mm. So I used to put it on everything. Is Cereal. that the one that boils into caramel? No, no See, it's that's not, a common it? misconception. That's condensed that's milk. That's right. Condensed. So there's the condensed milk which you boil and then you make banoffee pie. Right. Out of it. <laughs> <laughs> but evaporated milk is you know it's it's runnier. Ah, have you tried boiling evaporated milk? No, See what actually, I but I'm going to do that as soon as I get home. Interesting, because these because it's about the sugar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the so, condensed, yeah. Because yeah. you know, once I tried to boil <laughs> the condensed milk that was condensed milk light. Oh, right, did not work. <laughs> Five hours <laughs> in a saucepan <laughs> boiling it, because I love making banoffee pie, came out runny. Oh, really? But brown. Well, yeah. I'm impressed with your commitment that you Oh, yeah, I was committed. Oh, now I just buy the ready made yeah, one. Yeah, sure. yeah. Um, I was just pretending I could cook, <laughs> <laughs> which obviously I couldn't because I got it wrong. Where's your favourite place to eat in London? That's a good question. It, it moves around, actually. Two, two things I'd say. One, just because I have this really nostalgic memory, is is Murano, which is like it's a bit swanky, but it's um, Angela Hartnett's restaurant, which is really beautiful. And, and Matthew Mesman took me there and got for a treat once, mm. and had the little chef's table, which was very exciting. Nice. But other than that, probably where's you know, that? It's um, it's in Mayfair. I've not been there. Well, I'd recommend it. It's really, it's really nice. It's kind of, it's, it is posh and it's upmarket, you know, with like the, the heavy cutlery and the mm. crisp linens and stuff, but it's got a really nice relaxed vibe about mm. it. It's just really nice, great Italian um, inspired food. But I'd probably say that the, my other place, my more day to day is there's a South Indian restaurant in Peckham called Ganapati. Cooking Indian and eating Indian is my favourite food. Mm. So that's my favourite place. Nice. Who would you like to play you in a film of your life? Oh, that's a good question. I would Denzel. Yeah, yeah. I could see him playing you. Actually. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What would you say is your best feature or personality trait? Everyone who knows me will kill me if I don't say my eyes. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they'll think that I'm just being all kind of like. <laughs> I do so. have quite nice eyes. By the way, you can't see Michael, but he, as he mentioned earlier, he's mixed race, but he's got blue eyes. <laughs> that are actually quite amazing when you look at him. You're like, oh my God. Because <laughs> he's very dark-skinned. And yeah, he's got blue eyes. So yeah, your eyes. I agree. If you hadn't said that, I probably would have gone, you what about your yeah, eyes? Exactly. Yeah. What makes you annoyed? Oh, without sounding pompous. Uh, in- injustice, mm. I think, you know, and intolerance. Mm. Going back to Piers Morgan. <laughs> Speaking it's of like, which. Who gives you the right to do that or say that? Right. Meat or veggie? Meat. Okay. Do you have a beauty regime? 
A little, as I've got older, I've tried to be a little bit more strict, mm. but I wouldn't call it a regime. I mean, I do have particular products that I use all the time. Please tell. <laughs> so I, I, I'm, using, I'm using Murad now, which oh, I, yes. I, really, I really like that, actually. Mm. But only because I got, oh, there was in a department store and I got, got sucked into it. But I was actually quite pleased about it. I got a free facial and then mm. spent like hundreds of pounds on the products. But I really like them. Mm. So, I, so, I, so I use Murad. Um, but, I, you know, I, I don't, I'm not religious about the Ken's Tone Moisturise this, this, this no, every day. I'm not. But I do, I use product every day, but yeah. I don't do the whole routine thing mm. all the time. What's your favourite film of all time? Brief Encounter. <gasps> I love that film. Oh, yeah. That's, that's the easiest question for I me. forgot about that. Actually, my, yeah, yeah. my top three films. I'm not, you know, you didn't ask You can do top three, go well, on. They haven't changed. It's always it's Brief Encounter, mm. Secrets and Lies. Oh, my oh, God, I love I Secrets and Lies. Yeah, yeah. I know, because that just comes from being adopted, I think. <laughs> you know, that, line, that line is, like, oh, I've never been with a black man, darling. <laughs> And her face changes. Brenda Bethan is so brilliant in that, isn't yeah, she? Yeah. yeah. That, that, that's, they haven't changed for years. Though. And what's your third one? Um, that one moves around a little bit. I think at the moment it's Dream Girls. Oh, okay. With yeah. Beyonce. Yeah, and, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. Have you ever done anything illegal that you could want to talk about? <laughs> no. Every time I ask this question, people go, I'm not going to say. <laughs> no. like some people have. But, oh, no. Yeah. Speeding tickets, that counts. Yeah, if you want. Well, there you go. That's as much as you're getting. Okay. <laughs> when was the last time you cried? Last week. I was at the uh, at a funeral. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I cry at the drop of a hat. Oh, I do as well. TV, no, 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 the TV makes me cry all the time. Yeah. I like I that. I cried at Coronation Street yes, the other day. I can't <laughs> believe I'm crying at a soap. Um, if I'm in by myself, I'll sometimes put something on just to cry. <laughs> it's always good to get it out. Exactly. Always good to get it out. Karaoke song of choice. Uh, Need somebody else, but it's um, Elaine Page, Barbara Dixon. I know him so well. <laughs> <laughs> it's gay, by the way. <laughs> Mind you, do you know what mine is? I've got a couple, but one of them is I loved Islands in the Stream. <gasps> do you know what? That's my second one. We have a wedding. Are you Kenny or Dolly? Oh, I'll be either. Okay, I don't fine. care. I yeah. like to be Dolly. <laughs> Last book you read? Um... Oh God! You know that I used to. I used to read a lot more than I do now. Uh, the internet, don't you think, stopped us from reading a bit? And I just yeah. find I just don't have really because I like I read more when I'm on holiday. Yeah, me I, too. I like to be really engrossed in it. Mm. I think the last last book I read was a. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but it's. Um, nor can I pronounce the the author. It's a Harry Hole mystery. I think it's written by somebody who's like Swedish or something. Right. It's um. It's kind of Scandi kind of. But like Scandi drama in a in a in a book, <laughs> it's kind of a bit bit dark, and it's got this troubled detective who's got issues. Oh, nice! They should make it. Well, they have made a couple of films out of his book. Have they? I can't remember his name. Can't remember his name. No. Hmm. One last question: yeah. When you were young, did you want to be a doctor or a nurse? Uh, I didn't want it to be either, actually. To be honest with you. But when you realised that, were you like doctor or nurse? Doctor. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think that was? That's a good question. I've never thought about it. I don't know. I think there's a, I think there's a, I think that there was there was an element and actually I mean I do kind of like think that it was, it's quite fortunate that I I like being a doctor and, mm. and I, I'm quite good at it but because there was an element of a bit conveyor belty stuff you know when I was at, was at school and I was used to get good exam grades and stuff and was really good at the sciences so it was kind of you become a doctor or a, or a vet it was kind of what was what was mm. offered so I probably didn't really give it that much thought are they sort of similar in a way. Doctors and vets. Yeah, I know. Obviously, one's humans, you one's want to animals. Go, you want to make sure you go to the right one. Well, yeah, no, don't worry. I do go to. I don't go to a vet for my health um, problem. I just wonder whether the 
there's similar training going on. It's a on. bit longer to be a vet, actually, I think. Right. Um, but I guess it is, because you have to learn about anatomy and how the body yeah. works and how drugs work. And yeah. It's so, just they've got surgery. more legs, normally, haven't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you're a vet. They're, they're a bit more varied, don't you? Especially if you're a vet, you have to be able to do cats and ferrets and gerbils and That's horses. That's true. Yeah. Because humans are a little bit more standard. Not these days. Not with all the different genders. There's a hundred I hear. <laughs> And on that note, we will finish. Thanks, Michael. It's a real pleasure. Thank yeah, you. it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to In Bed with Neil Moody with my guest, Michael Brady. Michael can be contacted on england.lgbtadvisor at nhs.net and a website for the work that he does will be coming available later in the year. If you want to get in bed with me again and another of my guests, then you can subscribe to my podcast on all the regular platforms to ensure that you don't miss an episode. There are other episodes, including all of series one, already available to listen to straight away. Thanks for listening. Listening.